The views, comments, stories, and opinions shared within this podcast are our own or those of our guests and in no way represent the views of the companies, associations, or organizations that any of us may work for. All stories, events, or tales shared within this episode may or may not have happened in the manner in which they're told. They may or may not have even happened at all. The details have been changed to protect the innocent and the guilty alike. This is Squawk Ident. You're listening to Squawk Ident, an aviation podcast that explores the many pathways to an aviation profession, the challenges that a professional aviator can expect in today's marketplace, and we share many stories along the way. I'm your host, Aviator Tony, a professional airline pilot currently flying for a U.S. legacy airline with close to 20 years on the flight line. This is episode 73 of Squawk Ident, recorded on the 12th of March, 2021, from the studio 732 on the seventh floor of the Delta Hotel, Lake Buena Vista in Orlando, Florida. On today's episode, I have the privilege to sit down with a friend and former guest, Captain Kevin Elmore. The first time he was with us was on episode 50, Captain, Commander, and Team USA. That was the episode where we introduced Captain Elmore to the podcasting world. In episode 50, he shared with us his journey in aviation. He outlined his service to our country, where he served as a commander in the U.S. Navy, and how at the age of 50, he decided to start training to become a triathlete and add that to his long list of accomplishments. He is a Legacy Airlines Airbus captain, a retired commander, an E-2 and ES-3A pilot for the U.S. Navy. In his service to our nation, he has been stationed aboard the USS Independence, America, Midway, Theodore Roosevelt, and the USS Enterprise twice. He is an award-winning USA triathlon team member, an SBR sports ambassador, an F2C nutrition ambassador, and a USA triathlon certified coach. With over 20,000 hours at the controls of aircraft, please help me in welcoming back to the show, Captain Kevin Elmore. Kevin, how are you doing? I'm great, Tony. Thanks for uh, having me again. Uh, it's, you know, it's a, it's a pleasure and an honor uh, to fly with you uh, again and also be on the show again. Um, so I'm, I'm super excited to be here. Oh, well, welcome back. And thank you for speaking with us today. You know, I was looking at my schedule for March and I was looking through it and I didn't really get what I wanted as sometimes happens when you're bidding through a PBS system, right. which is a preferential bidding system. A lot of the regionals and uh, major airlines in the U.S. use this uh, computerized system where you put in a, a bid preference. Uh, what would you rather have? And we've talked about this on the show at length before. So you, you talk about what would you rather have weekends off, three day trips, four day trips. I'd rather have uh, minimal time uh, at at base or uh, on duty, or maybe I'd like to maximize my time as a commuter and work you know, four or five, six days straight before I have a big block of time off. So you put all these preferences in the system and it is then awarded not just based on seniority, but based on availability and trying to satisfy as many as the criteria that you have set for yourself. And this month, in the month of March, uh, I haven't been flying, as the listeners know, very much. I've had some vacation and some home improvement projects that I've been working on, and I've really enjoyed that time. But now in March, I wanted to get back to it, get back on the line, have a full schedule, 
and kind of catch up uh, because this is a depreciable skill. You know, you have to you know, get out there and be on the line you know, quite often uh, to keep your skills up. And I didn't like what I got. So I started to look at trading trips. And that's when you go on the computer and you look at, all right, uh, this trip, somebody dropped it. They didn't want it. I like that trip better than my trip. And then you go in the computer system and you can put in trade requests. And when I got to this trip, the trip that we're on now, I was looking at other trips to trade and I always make sure who am I flying with? You know, I wanted to see. And when I saw your name come up, I thought, oh my, I cannot trade this trip. This is <laughs> awesome. And I honestly, to be honest with you, I, I checked uh, almost every day up to the day before the trip to see if you were going to trade out of it. Right. Because if you did, then I'd probably try to pick up something a little bit better right. for me. Um, and I was really happy that you didn't. It's interesting because we were in the same situation. I have vacation at the end of the month. So I was looking at possibly moving my schedule around because I didn't want to have a trip too close to my vacation or actually at the end of my vacation, I didn't want to go, have to go right back to work. So I looked at possibly moving some things around and I saw your name and I thought the same thing. I'm, uh, I'm not going to move this trip. And I kept checking it to make sure that your name was still on it. So I was happy to see that it didn't, didn't change. So. Oh, thank you for that. I mean, definitely looking forward to it. Yeah. You know, we've, we've had, we've flown together quite a bit over the years and, and we always have great conversation yeah. on the flight deck. And, and for me, that's a pleasure. Right. When I, when I can converse with someone and we really, you know, get along, our, our conversation is always positive. Right. Um, I, I always try to learn something from you because of your extensive background and experience. And, and it's quite motivating to hear right what you've been training for or what's been going on. And I think the first question I asked you on day one was, all right, what have you been running or, you know, have you been right, training for right, anything? And right. we both looked at each other with the same kind of disappointment and said, no, it's, yeah, it's COVID's kind of kicked us all. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Stupid COVID, right? It's, it's definitely taken its toll on the year as far as me physically. And, um, I, uh, you know, I, I feel the same way at when I come into the cockpit, especially with uh, guys like you that are flow throughs, you've actually been a captain longer than I have. Uh, I didn't, tra uh, I didn't upgrade until 2016. So oh. I can learn a lot from you guys. Uh, and especially you with your, your aviation knowledge and your podcast uh, experience. So yeah, it's a, it's a mutual exchange and, and always, always a pleasure um, to, to try to learn something. I think the last time we flew, we had some weather issues and you taught me how to overlay the, the map onto the WSI. And mm -hmm. uh, I still use that to this to this day. Also, I think we talked about FMS Plus, yeah. which I use extensively. Um, that program's got some issues. Um, I wish you could change the route you know, update the, uh, like if you get a new routing, update the information that oh. that's on it. But, um, and also sometimes the fuel, uh, numbers aren't exact. So I wish you could, it would real time adjust the, the fuel information, but yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's, you learn and you take these things, uh, into your, uh, flying experience and it, it just, it enhances your whole flying experience. Yeah. 
Yeah. And, and speaking of FMS Plus, um, what we're talking about here for those listeners that may uh, not be familiar, uh, we have our EFB, which is our electronic flight bag. You know, you used to see pilots walking around the terminal with these big leather cases or, um, you know, basically a salesman case. And it was a, a pilot kit bag. And we had 25, 30 pounds worth of JEP charts and manuals and all the accoutrement that you would need. Right. Right. And that's all been replaced with modern technology. Everyone has a tablet of some kind. I, I really don't know of any operator, at least here in the U.S., that is still using paper JEP charts. So we use this electronic flight bag, which is a tablet that can hold every manual you could even imagine. We were only required to carry a few manuals back then because of the weight issues. And now everything is, is at our discretion. And every few months, we happen here at Legacy Airlines, the, the name of the airline we use as, a, as an alias to our employer here in the U.S., a U.S. mainline carrier based in Dallas, Fort Worth. And so we get this new app. And the last app that we had, the uh, last time we, we flew together that was brand new to us, was FMS Plus, which was kind of a dispatcher's tool. You could calculate all the data points with winds and pressure, and, and you could see where there might be turbulence ahead. So rather than just filing the flight plan at a particular altitude, say 35,000 feet, and then just plug along the whole trip, and then you're kind of in guesswork land when you're asking ATC, hey, we got bumps here at 35. What are the ride reports? Can we try lower? Can we try higher? Well, now your fuel burn, your all your plan that your dispatcher has come up with for you is going to be different. Your planned arrival fuel is going to be different. So this app now allows us to get rid of the tools that we used to use, which was communicate through our ACAR system, basically an email, electronic email. A system to keep it real simple that goes through our flight management computer, sends an ACARS message to dispatch, and then they have to read it and get back to us and run the numbers. And it just took forever. And sometimes, if they're busy with bad weather, which is usually when you have to talk to them, right. it would take way too long to get any practical information back. So they allowed us to have this app that now we can real time adjust our flight levels in the app to see what our fuel anticipated fuel burn would be, right. what might be the better solution for time if we're a bit behind schedule. Right. And factor in the cost index as well. Everything. Yeah. yeah it's and great. It's been a great tool. Yes. The latest tool that we received was a new app called SkyPath. Oh, I have. Have you used that one yet? I have not used that yeah, one. I've used it a little bit. Um, if you put in your flight number, same concept comes up as say, putting in your flight number in the, the Jepson um, app. It calculates and plots out your flight plan. And then all the other aircraft that are participating, which are most of the ones that are uh, other legacy airline flights in route that are also active on their tablet to SkyPath, the tablet will then sense your turbulence your actual turbulence. Oh, wow. So it's real-time pirate reporting into the app. And if you leave it on throughout the duration of the flight, you can get a notification. And I've, I've used it. It's quite interesting. So the, the, your tablet will go, ding, anticipated moderate turbulence in five minutes. Oh my gosh, wow. And so you're like, oh. And then you pull up the app 
and it's a moving map display and it'll show little boxes. Okay. And it was a yellow box or an orange box, depending on the severity of the aircraft in front of you that reported it. Now, I don't know the technical aspects of this. If, if you, you know, bang against the, the right. holder of your EFB, does right. that calculate turbulence? I, I don't know. Right, right. So I don't know about how accurate it is, but it's an interesting tool. Yeah. Um, the only downside to that one is that, at least for myself, I've noticed that I lose satellite coverage okay, quite often. Right, it's right. very picky. Right. And depending, we have like four different holders in right. the cockpit. And so depending on the holder, you might have to turn it vertical instead of Correct. horizontal. Right. And so it, it's a bit of a, it has its challenges, let's say that. Right. Uh, but Well, you have to show me on our, uh, our next leg. Yeah. Yeah. In a couple hours, we're, we're going uh, to DFW actually from Orlando. Right. And we'll have to, to, to manipulate that and see. Give it a try. Sure. Yeah. So, so there's a lot of this, you know, information and technology that is becoming available to us every single day. Right. And, and what we were talking about a little bit earlier yesterday, actually, on our, on our flight over was a little bit about, do you think flying has become harder? Or do you think the technology has made it easier? And with that, do you think that the leadership and decision-making process on the flight deck has changed, degraded, or gotten better? What are your thoughts? Um, I think over the last, say, 10, 15 years, uh, with the introduction of the threat error management model, uh, we've been able to identify, uh, you know, at least uh, cockpit resource management problems uh, a little bit better. So I think it's made us more professional in the sense that we uh, know how to articulate and cope with problems or issues that come up. Uh, I think um, we've gotten smarter with the the new technology. Um, also, we've We've also faced some contract issues, you know, outside influences that affect our performance. So in my particular case, it's made me more aware of things that are going on outside and cause, caused me to focus more in the cockpit. So I'd say overall, we're more professional. We're more aware of what's going on in the cockpit a little bit more sensitive uh, to our colleagues that we're flying with. And uh, I think we, with the introduction, we just talked about the EFB, all these different things have made us more professional and better at our craft uh, than we were, say, 10, 15 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's what we were, we were talking to last, about last night. Um, I kind of feel the same way that, I can remember a time before smartphones uh, being based in Chicago in the wintertime. We have weather. We, you know, we're going to a place that's snowing. We have two alternates. We have a takeoff alternate. Those are the days where you're really earning your keep. Right. And I used to sit there at the gate and there, there used to be many monitors and computer systems at the at one gate simply because they knew that the captain was going to have to print out a flight plan which we don't really do anymore um then that the pilots would have access to a terminal to check weather 
prior to departure. Um, and then, of course, the gate agents would have to have monitors for their duties and responsibilities. And I can remember one time, many years ago, I was looking at the NOAA site for weather and looking at what the snowstorm was doing and looking at our route and our estimated time of arrival and the TAF. And, and simply because I didn't just print the release and go. Right. Um, my captain for that particular trip was already at the aircraft. He had set up what they called the nest. You know, when you get into the cockpit for the first time or the flight deck, you set up your nest. You know, right. you, you pull everything out that you're going to use. You put everything where you want it, your sticky notes, whatever, whatever you is, you know, or you have. <laughs> and, uh, and uh, it, it, no knee boards, ladies and gentlemen, no knee boards. <laughs> Not that there's anything wrong with that. Um, so still in the military, they do. In the, and I've flown with captains <laughs> right. that still, you know, especially helicopter uh, pilot uh, captains that uh, they, they still love that knee board. And, and it's very convenient. Right. But uh, but in the flight deck, we kind of just spread out normally and just put little pieces of paper at places. And, and so we have our little nest, the way we like things. And that's what he was setting up. And when I went down there, I went, well, I got your release for you, Captain. I'll go do the walk around. I just checked the weather. The weather looks good. The snowstorm is going to stay south of our route. So the dispatcher did a good job by taking us a little bit north uh, than what we normally would do. And he goes, you check the weather? Well, how did you do that? I went, uh, on the NOAA app, on the, up at the gate, on the computer. He goes, well, what the hell did you do that for? Now I'm going to be paranoid the whole flight. I don't ever check the weather. <laughs> so what does it matter? They're going to make us go anyway. Right. It's like we have a choice. The captain doesn't have the authority to cancel a flight anyway. Right. Now I'm going to be worried about it. I'll say, well, I just told you not to worry. Right. So, right. And he kind of said it in jest. But in those days, right. there was that aspect of not knowing. Sure. Because you get complacent. Complacency was a big word in training. Right. In current training as well. Right. And yeah. like you said, today, with all the technology we have. Yeah, I, I didn't really delve into it as much in my mind when we were talking about it last night, but you just brought up some, some very uh, salient points with the introduction of, let's just say, on the Jeppesen app, when you have the approach played up. You know, I was, up until just maybe two trips ago, I was still reading the F4 messages and I would scroll through the NOTAMs. I didn't realize uh, uh, one of my uh, first officers two trips ago at Legacy told me if you pull up the approach plate on Jefferson and you hit the NOTAM, you'll actually get the NOTAMs for, for that approach. Yeah. Saves you so much time and, and effort. Uh, and then the same thing with WSI. If you get a new routing and you delete your uh, flight number and you re-enter your flight number, you'll actually get the refiled routing when you uh, enter the new flight number based on the input from the ATC. Mm -hmm. So you don't even have to change the routing on the WSI. It's all yeah, automatic. Real time. And it's, <laughs> I mean, it's just amazing the, the, with the link with the weather, the overlay on, on your route with the weather. I mean, it just takes things that you took for granted uh back in the day uh it puts it right there for you it increases your situational awareness awareness and like i said makes us better professionals uh more skilled at our craft yeah and, and that uh that information 
is absolutely crucial. Probably, you know, some would argue 100% of the time. Um, I think realistically, probably 60% of that time, uh, you need to rely on that information quickly to right. make sound decisions. Right. We used to talk about, you mentioned the TEM and the CRM model. We used to mention the CRM model. It was a model that was developed, what, in the 90s, I think? Probably. To, to eliminate Late the- Late 90s, right. Yeah, the, the captain's always right. Uh, every leg is the captain's leg. They'll allow you to touch the buttons, but only if you ask permission first. And the only three things <laughs> the captain ever wants to hear from his FO is, I'll take the chicken clear on the right, and how'd you get to be so smart yet, right? <laughs> so we had to get rid of that because right. uh, through the NTSB accident investigations of the time, they found that there was a lot of this uh, totalitarian rule in the cockpit. Right. And they developed CRM as a way to minimize those kind of incidences that could potentially create an accident or incident. And CRM was just shoveled down our throats and training every single time we were back in the schoolhouse. You know, we have to be open. If one person is questioning something, we should all be questioning it. And the pleasure that comes from flying with you, and we mentioned this on the last podcast, is that you've always been very receptive to input, not just from your fellow pilot or your FO, but from your flight crew, your flight attendants. Um, this time we flew together, I noticed that your pre-flight briefing to the cabin crew is consistent, it's professional, and you do it with a tone that's very welcoming. And that's unfortunately very rare. Thank you. Yeah. And, and uh, we talked about leadership characteristics, uh, things that you learn from not just the good, but the bad captains and commanding officers in the military. And I always start my, my flights out with a, a crew brief with the cabin crew. And uh, I got that format straight out of the FOM, uh, you know, uh, and, and some of the messages that we get from the company, uh, how to handle now that we have the issue with uh, wearing of face masks. Um, how to report that, how to coordinate uh, if you have an issue, uh, cabin items, uh, potential weather, turbulence. Those, I mean, you just go down the list and it sets the tone. Um, you let them know that you have their back 100%. I have a little caricature that I share with them, two stick figures, and one guy's got the middle of the body. Basically, I got your back is what you're telling them. And they really appreciate it. And like you said, uh, it's unfortunate, but you, you, they don't receive that much. Uh, and, and I like to do that. It sets a tone, even if you're only flying a leg with them. Uh, it, it just breaks the ice, lets them know that you're with them. And uh, it just, it makes, uh, it makes it a safe environment to operate the aircraft. Yeah. And, and if you're an aspiring pilot and you, dream of one day commanding a ship and flying for a mainline carrier, remember that those crew briefings are essential. And don't forget to do it on the first leg, even if you're only doing one leg. Because I could tell you right now, a flight comes to mind that departed LaGuardia about a decade ago, first leg trip together. And that flight lasted less than a few minutes before it ended up in the Hudson. Right. That crew briefing 
before a flight, you might think, oh, no big deal. I'll, I'll catch them on the next one. Right. Or we're rushed. And, you know, the plane got in late and we just got here. I, I have to run my checklist and do I don't have time for I'll, I'll get you on the next one. Or you only talk to the purser, which is what I see 90% of the time. You give right. a briefing to the purser and you're assuming the purser is now going to go and disseminate that briefing to the other two, three or four flight attendants or however many you may have on board your equipment. And then you find out later that, that oh, I never, it would have been nice to receive a briefing captain. And the captain says, well, I, I gave it to the purser. Right. So it's nice the way you do it. I really right. appreciate it. And that, you know, we talked about uh, how sometimes outside influence can force uh, crews to rush to comply. And so I make it a point. Uh, I mean, obviously you have to be flexible, but I try to let the gate agents know that even though the plane just got there or they want, they need to board the plane in 20 minutes, I need five minutes with my crew just to accomplish that because I put that much uh, priority on, on doing that. So when they want to send the passengers down, I tell them, nope. We have to we have to brief as a crew first and then we can do the rest. And uh, they appreciate that because now if they they're getting to the flight late, they're not rushing and putting their bags up and don't have time to check catering and do their uh, pre-flight checks. So it takes a little bit of pressure on them. And then I usually tell the gate, gate agent also when the purser or the number one is ready, that's when we're ready to board. So good. Um, yeah. Yeah. Try to be consistent with that as well. Now we've been talking about, you know, the tools that we have at our disposal, um, the multitude of different apps that we can use to gather information on the flight deck real time. Most of the time with our Wi-Fi connections that some of the carriers are now, uh, have on their entire fleet for the flight deck. Do you think there's some information overload with that? I don't, not that possibly, I mean, I, I try to be just like my briefs consistent with the information that I access so that I don't have that issue. Um, I go straight to the tablet. I go to, uh, CCI, um, to get all the flight information, crew information, flight plan, all that data. Uh, I check the weather. Um, there's just a few items that I use consistently to make sure that I'm not overloaded with too much data. Um, and, and that also has to do with prep, which I'll, I'll admit, I don't always prepare enough. I had a trip to Mexico city, uh, a few weeks ago and I was terrified because I had never been to Mexico city. I know there's a lot of terrain down there. I was fortunate enough to have to go to the schoolhouse for landings. And uh, after we finished the, the, the maneuvers validation, basically is what it turned into be. I asked the Czech airman if he would take me down to Mexico City and we could run the approach. Ah, yeah. So that was, it ended up being a great tool because I got to see what I was, you know, getting ready to fly in a couple of weeks. And I had an uneventful uh, flight into Mexico City. but. I mean, I prepped, I, I did the sim, uh, ride, which not all of us have an opportunity to do that. But then I went back home and I studied 
uh, all the company references to, you know, fly that approach safely into Mexico City. And there's a lot of things, mm-hmm. especially, well, in, in our industry, there are a lot of things that can really bite you. Uh, and if you don't, if you don't uh, take the time to prep and prepare. Yeah. And, and I think we've, we've kind of scratched the surface with this, but this is a, a wonderful way to segue into it. The new model, and we've talked about this before on the podcast as well, is what's called a threat and error management. And I think it's, a, it's like CRM 2.0. It is a, it's a Swiss cheese model is what some people call it. So you have threats coming at you no matter what you do in every aspect of your life, not just for aviation. Right. Um, you know, you, you get in your car to drive down to the grocery store to, to pick up your groceries for the week. There are threats that are coming at you from all directions. And what the threat and error management model does is, in a simple term, it makes sure that in terms of being in the green, in the yellow, or in the red, that you can recognize when you're in the green. and You've got this, everything, all the ducks are aligned and everything. And when you start to get into the yellow or feel behind or feel something's not right, that you recognize it and you stop and you vocalize it, especially on a flight deck. Hey, I'm in the yellow. And all right, well, let's slow it down and let's get you back in the green. Um, And this threat and error management model, as you learn more about it, you learn about all the, the layers, you know, there's the, the layers of the pilots in the flight deck and there's the layer of, you know, the station operation or the, the gate agents and then the layer of the flight attendants and mechanics and SOC and MOC and ATC and all these organizations that when you're flying a flight, like, for example, what we're going to be doing here in a few hours from Orlando to Dallas, there are so many people and organizations involved in tracking, in catering, in maintenancing your aircraft, and making sure that all the ducks are aligned in a row. And a threat and error management model, threats get through it. And if you're really having a bad day, a threat has gotten through at least six, seven layers of safety. And it's a great model for the modern world in the way we're operating. Do you feel that the TEM model has made a huge difference between the way we used to say CRM was the key factor of keeping us safe? Absolutely. I mean, just being able to use that term, I'm in the yellow, I'm in the red, I'm in the green. Uh, I remember when I first started as an FO on the Super 80 in Chicago, uh, I'd be over there in my nest with my pen, paper, you know, talking on the radio, trying to keep track of the, my finger, where we were on the Jefferson chart. And the captain would look over me. He goes, he, he would say, wow, you got a lot going on over there, you know? Um, but now, you know, and, and I was too busy trying to keep track of everything. That would be, that would have been a perfect opportunity if we had those colors to say, yeah, I'm I'm in the yellow right now. I'm I'm kind of I got my head down. I can't keep keep up with the ATC instructions to get to the runway. Can you can we just take a minute? Uh but now, you know, you you have that ability to say I'm in the yellow. Let's let's take it down. You know, you you have that tool to to articulate 
where you are, how you feel, what's your situational awareness, how, how are you coping with the current situation in the cockpit. Uh, so I, th- I really love the threat error management tool. I, I think it's, um, it's, a, it's been a, a great tool to stay connected to your, your, you know, just by dividing pilot flying and pilot monitoring. We didn't have that before either. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes if things start to really uh, cloud up for me as a captain, it's almost better to have the, the, the first officer take the controls so I can take a step back. And now I have a better picture, uh, uh, overall situational awareness of what's going on. And I can, I can recage my gyro and get back in the, in the game and, and get back in the green. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Absolutely. The last time you were on the podcast, we discovered how your exciting journey in aviation came to be. You gave us the details of how a kid from the Bronx ended up accomplishing a successful aviation career in both the U.S. Navy and as a captain at a legacy airline. If you had to focus on the personality trait that most influenced your success, what would that be? Hmm. I have to think about that one. The personality trait that most influenced my success. I would say leadership. Leadership, being a good leader, um, compartmentalizing. I'd say, yeah, I'd say leadership. You have to be an effective leader. You have to lead by example. You have to be, and and this is always applied to me as a young African-American in society today. You, I feel like I have to outperform my peers. I, I always, you know, it's just an, an innate responsibility or, or feeling that I have, that I have to prove that I'm good enough. And so when I'm in the cockpit, I, I'm constantly trying to be better and, and, and make conscious decisions to do, follow the FOM to, you know, as to, to my knowledge, as, as close as possible. Um, and, and just be the best professional I can be and, and emote and lead with that capability. Yeah. And, and what really impressed me as we got down this road of leadership in our conversation is that you told me that you were the featured speaker at Legacy Airlines's very first cadet class of their cadet program. Now, we've had the cadet program uh, recruiters on the podcast before. Uh, We've had a mentor, uh, Kyle uh, Jensen, on the podcast before. And we've also had a few cadets. You were the featured speaker for the very first class back in 2018. You were showing me photos of you on the podium. It was really cool to see. What how did that get started? What, uh, what allowed you to, to get into that role? So I've been a, a mentor to young aviators for probably the past 25, 30 years in my career. Basically, since I started flying, I always try to reach back into the community, make sure, you know, people can see me 
and I can help them reach their goals as a aviator or not necessarily in, in the prof- aviation profession, but just uh, professionally. And as a mentor, what I realized in the aviation community was in order to be a, a, a really effective leader and mentor, I needed to put myself in a position to actually help these pilots reach that ultimate goal, that, that dream job. So I basically applied to become a new hire interviewer at Legacy. And as a new hire interviewer, uh, I, again, always putting my best foot forward, was selected to actually train new hire interviewers. Uh, so when the when Legacy Airline hired new interviewers, I was actually doing some of the training so that they could become effective interviewers. Mm-hmm. Through that process, uh, the the person in charge at the time was Dave Tatum. Uh, he basically had the confidence and and uh, respect for me to be able to lend my my uh, professionalism and mentor skills to the uh, cadet program. Uh, and he chose me to come to Dallas and basically give a motivational speech to that first class. And I was beyond honored and full of pride to be able to, to do that. And I told them the story about my dad. I think we talked about this on the last episode, how I wasn't able to reach my goal of becoming a naval aviator right out of college. And my dad gave me those wings and told me to keep my eye on the prize. So that's the story I gave them and conveyed to them that the only thing between them and achieving their goal was basically them. It being getting out of their own way to, to make that happen. Yeah. And, and it's, it's funny that you say that, uh, because I was going to ask you, what is the best advice that you can give someone who is maybe thinking about becoming an aviator, but hesitates because of the instability that they see in the news with furloughs and things like that? Do you tell them if this is really what you want to do, go for it? Or do you give something a little bit more detailed about it? Well, I tell them to make sure this is what they want. You know, go do a discovery flight, uh, do a couple of them. Make sure you're absolutely sure that this is where your passion is. Because you have to have passion. You have to have drive and determination. And then you can't ever take no for an answer. If you decide that that's where you're going to go, then you have to put the blinders on and plow forward with everything you have because there's so many things that can get in your way when you pursue the aviation goal. Uh, it, it's just, it, it requires focus, determination, drive, and a ton of effort. So those are all the things that you have to put into it. And so you need to make sure that that's absolutely what you want to do. So why is mentoring so important then to you? For me, when my dad would bring me to work when he was a mechanic and they'd finish working on the airplane and taxi the airplane from the hangar to the terminal, when I was sitting in that cockpit pretending 
well, pretending to push the buttons, I always thought I was going to be a a mechanic. I never really thought that I was going to be a pilot because I never saw any pilots that look like me. So I think it's important that to be a mentor so people can see people like them can become pilots in a major airline. Yeah. And so, and you're mentioning our previous conversation. If you haven't listened to episode 50 of Squawk Ident, I highly encourage you after this show to go back and take a listen because Kevin's (laughs) journey is absolutely amazing. He stands on the shoulders of many of the aviators that came before him and he was able to overcome quite a bit of adversity to get here, to be so successful in the U.S. Navy, to have so many different opportunities, and then to parlay that into a career in commercial aviation and get on with an airline at a young age. And you mentioned earlier, like, oh, I have more captain time than you, but man, you've got You've got hours. <laughs> you have some hours. We mentioned uh, we we're trying to calculate this earlier today. It's like something more like twenty thousand plus right. thousand, twenty thousand plus hours. I came out of the navy with close to four thousand. So I started in ninety eight. So what's that? Uh, twenty three years of you know. So yeah, roughly twenty thousand. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, just amazing. Of, of all that you've accomplished. And we're talking, we're constantly talking about this professionalism, this leadership. It must be pretty important. How can a new student pilot who's maybe fresh out of high school, working on their rating at 18, 19 years old, they're focusing on learning the languages of aviation, weather phenomenon and terms. They're learning, you know, the charts and regulations and airspace volumes and how to tune and identify VOR and track a localizer inbound and, and all this information. And amongst all that, they've got to worry about professionalism. How do they do that? That's where the mentor comes in. Having a mentor, you don't even really have to do it intentionally. You, you just, you're just there for them. And I think they see how you respond, how you react, what you talk about. And while they're focusing on the things that they need to focus on as a student, they're soaking all this in peripherally, uh, if that's a word. Uh, they're soaking this in. It's through osmosis. It's, it's, a, it's becoming part of their, their psyche. It's becoming part of who they are, their personality. Yeah. Yeah, one of one of my very first guests on the show was a very talented young man who is now here at Legacy Airlines, Jean Michael. Uh, Jean Michael and I were at the training hotel in Dallas at the same time, uh, and the, what happened was I was checking into the hotel. I had just came, uh, come off the flight that I commuted in from from L.A. And uh, I hear Anthony and I turn around and no one's called me Anthony for a while. So I turn around and I, yeah, I, oh my God, John Michael, he was the 17 year old student pilot, youngest sign off I ever had, my first student pilot sign off I ever had. And he was standing behind me and I'm like, what are you doing here? And he's like, oh, I just got hired. And I think I'm thinking at the regional. And he's like, no, no, I'm a 7-3 FO for Legacy. Wow. And I was like, 
oh my God, what's your seniority going to be when you retire? Cause they all know, you know, right. and he's like, oh, it's going to be like in the under a hundred. I think wow. he said. And so he told me about his journey and we, we, we got to record one of our first shows together awesome. uh, doing that. But I thought about that and I, and I think about that often. There were times when I thought he's so young, right? You're at the command of an aircraft and though it's relatively safe, if you know what you're doing and you're following the procedures and the guidelines and the lessons you've learned and, and you've had instructors sign you off that they're confident and they're putting their endorsement behind you that you're going to make good decisions, safe decisions on the flight deck. I know what I was like when I was 17. Right. And I know that I probably, if I didn't have someone in the back of my mind that I knew I would disappoint if I did something stupid. Right. That I probably would have done something stupid. Right. And my hat's off to the younger generation because the opportunity to go, oh, check, hold my beer, watch this. Right. In this industry, it's plentiful because when you're on the flight deck, other unless you're in training or in a simulator doing recurrent training of some kind or, or on the flight line with your flight instructor, right? you really don't have anyone looking over your shoulder, right? especially solo. Right. So you're like, hey, I'm going to go buzz that cow. Well, if you have a mentor in your life mm-hmm. and you think in the back of your mind, you have that little voice going, Kevin would be disappointed in me. Sure. I shouldn't do that. Right. I think that's what makes mentorship, not just answering the questions, because you can go online. Technology is there. We've talked about that. Right. I think it's that I want to make them proud. I want to be. And, and I, that's why I believe in the mentorship program so much, because, I mean, I look back to my career and fortunate for me, I was in the military. And, you know, when you're. 25, 28 years old, and you're strapping a million dollar jet on your back, you know, you don't have passengers to worry about. You don't have anybody really that you're responsible to uh, other than your crew. You can go out and do whatever you want in that airplane. You don't have as many people looking at you from the outside. If you have that mentor or somebody that you look up to and you say, well, if I went out and did that, I, I would disappoint them. I didn't really have too much of that in my earlier in my career when I was young. So my path as a military aviator was probably the better path at that point, because I don't know if I had the maturity back then to, to be a captain at yeah. even a regional. Having that discipline at a young age Absolutely. really helped. I was yeah. kind of a wild child back then. I mean, I had a few mentors, but they were also military guys. And so I, I didn't have that discipline. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's really uh, one of the most key fe- features in what a mentor can offer a right. young person. So you were telling me last night. That you think everyone who has the ability should mentor. Why do you feel that way? I mean, if you think about it, it's, it's the only way you can influence the future. You can go back and you can grab however many people you can grab and show them 
not just in aviation, but in life, what it takes to be successful, what, what, what they need, what skill set they need to, to be what they want to be. Uh, I have a young lady that's um, working in a hospital, and I think she's in Utah, and she sent me a, a private message about getting into the military uh, physician's assistant program. And I said, oh my gosh, you'd be a great candidate. You were a water polo player in high school. You played water polo in college. You've been working in the health industry uh, for many years now. Be a perfect candidate. So I wrote her a letter of recommendation um, to uh, submit to the Air Force. Mm -hmm. All she needed to do was get accepted into a PA program which she since has done that. So she's going to go uh, get her PA degree on the Air Force dime and become a uh, second lieutenant, or actually I think she goes in as a captain in the Air Force. Nice. And I get a chance to pin her, uh, her captain's bars on and make her a commissioned officer in the Air Force. And so that feeling, that ability to help people matriculate and become productive citizens. I mean, who, who wouldn't want to do that? I mean, I think everybody should do it. It's, it's an incredible sense of pride and it makes you, it just, it's a great sense of accomplishment when you can go in and, and do that and influence young, the younger generation. Yeah. And, and I, I too feel very similarly about mentoring, um, I can't stress enough the level of pride when I get a message from someone saying that they've made their next accomplishment, they've set their next goal, and they're moving forward. It, it's it's a wonderful place to be, and and I absolutely agree that mentoring I think is crucial. We should be focused on that more right. than we are. Uh, I think especially now. This is the time, and this show really has been my way to get the word out to say, look, if you, if you really want to do this because of the thrill of the polyester and the uniform, don't do it. Right. And that's how I try to weed out those that are coming into it for the wrong reason. But if you have mm -hmm. a passion and you're not going to let no the first couple times dissuade you from this career, then I'm like, okay, mm -hmm. let's talk. Well, even, you know, look at the... When, when I talk to young, particularly young kids in, uh, like, say, elementary school, you know, one of the first things they ask, because they always ask the question, how much money do you make? <laughs> you, you should never, I don't think that you should get into this profession for the money. I mean, as you know, it's been kind of a up and down, a cyclic uh, journey as far as uh, pay and, and the aviation career. Yeah. And I wouldn't broadcast this publicly except for on your podcast. But really, when you look at this job, it's, it's all, I, I kind of compare it to a professional athlete. We are doing something that we love to do. At least you should be in love with what you do. You really wouldn't have to pay me a lot to do it. I just, I love the job that much. And so 
it's it's like an athlete you know you you love playing that sport and you do it for the love of the game and that's what i think people should remember when they come into aviation is do it for because you love it yeah. not because you want to get rich doing it because you're probably not going to get rich doing it right well not only the money um but this profession has its fair share of challenges and sacrifices that every aviator has to contend with if this career path is for them. And, and the airline career path is not the only path. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the path that I speak of most until my other co-host, uh, Roger, puts me in my place like he did on the last show. <laughs> <laughs> you airline guys, you don't know anything. Right. Uh, but it, it has its fair share of challenges and sacrifices. Right. Without getting into too much detail, how, how can one really expect to overcome all those and not have everything else in their life just fall apart? I think we touched on this last night, uh, compartmentalization. It's a character trait that you have to have in the military for sure and definitely in the aviation profession. So you have to be able to be laser focused and do all these different things that are required to get to the point that, you know, where you get your ATP and, and, but then you have to put that in a box and be able to live your life and accomplish all the other things that come your way. And I don't know, it's, it's, uh, it's, 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 it's a, Difficult balance, but it's certainly doable. Yeah. I think the most successful aviators in terms of balancing family life and home and hobbies and um, their athletic aspirations, whenever I find an aviator that's truly in a good place, it's because they're not so laser focused on their career that they lose sight of everything else around them. And right. I got to admit, I've been guilty of that in the past right. where I'm focused on my career, my career progression. And I didn't give due time to the other aspects of my life, like right. family right. and finances. Right. And, you know, I, I, I had to learn that. And I learned that through the advice and the mentoring of the pilots I flew with, a lot of the captains I flew with, both early on and now here in mm-hmm. my later part of my career. Um, and I think the, the healthiest individuals say, well, you know, uh, been ha- I've had a heavy month this month in terms of my schedule. So I have three days off and uh, don't call me. I'll be with my family. I'm taking my family camping or my wife needs time away from the kids. Uh, so I'm going to, you know, have her uh, pay for her to go on its little retreat with her girlfriends right. and I'm going to stay home with the kids right. or, you know, every Thursday night I have to be home because Thursday night's the night I make dinner. Right. So there's a balance. And I think that is the crucial part of surviving this career. Right. A lot of times we forget because we're having so much fun doing what we do. Right. And then we're thinking about it and I've had some time off. I was looking forward to coming back to work. Right. It's, again, the compartmentalization where you can park the jet at the terminal in Los Angeles and get in your car and however long your drive is, drive home is, you decompress. And then when you get home, you 
have to basically shelve that that trip unless your family wants to know about it. But then it's time to focus on your other life, which is all the non-pilot issues and things that go on there. And having a hobby helps, you know, me being a triathlete, all my training, uh, my girlfriend uh, taking care of her needs and making sure she's happy. Um, that's that that's where my focus is when I when I get off work. Yeah. 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 And, and I can't tell you how important that is. And uh, and thank you for sharing that with us. We'll be right back with more from Captain Elmore in just a moment. I know we're we're getting a little short on time uh, because we do have to get ready. Oh my goodness! For our flight time here, just flies by. It does. Um, but last few questions for you uh, before we wrap it up for today. And again, thank you so much oh. for agreeing to do this with me. I really enjoy having these conversations with you, and I'm sure our listeners do too. Um, you know, you you've talked about and spoken to what it means to be a mentor and to be professional in the flight deck. Um, sometimes you come across people that have lost sight of that. How do you deal with that? Turn on the happy face, try to bring joy, happiness, kindness. I That's kind of been my message with all the political nonsense that's been going on with the pandemic um, brings me back to 1962 or 64 when President Kennedy said, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. And that's been my message is what can I do? How can I contribute to the mental health of this country? And it's by spreading love joy, kindness, peace. So when you run across those people that just their life is so miserable that they're worried about Mr. Potato Head or, <laughs> or Dr. Seuss books, uh, you just kind of, you know, give them an anecdote or something to break the ice and, and smile about. And tell them a happy story or share a moment that puts a smile on the face or at least pulls them out of that rut that they may be in. And just, you know, another thing, and especially being a coach, lots and lots of positive encouragement, enthusiasm. And again, it's, it's, you got to shine your light and, and lead other people with your beacon of brightness. That's, that's, that's my message to those people that, don't necessarily have the ability to to be happy all the time. Yeah. I, I've I've had a conversation in the past, and I believe I've mentioned this before on the program. I think the difference between even 30 years ago and today is that we had patience and more than more than the term 
quiet, we had more stillness in our lives. Right. I remember growing up in in Northern California in a suburb town in the 80s and 90s. And you, if you had to call someone, you, you went inside the house and you called them mm-hmm. on the landline. Mm-hmm. And maybe they weren't home. And the phone just rang and rang and rang. And maybe they got one of these new fancy answering machines and you'd leave a message. And then you'd have to wait for them to call you back. And they'd call you back and then maybe you weren't home. And, but, you know, that's fine. And then maybe you finally touch base with each other two, three hours later. And you're like, hey, I'm just calling to see if you want to go play. I'm going to ride bikes down to the park. Right. Oh, let's go ride bikes. And you'd go and ride bikes. You didn't have earbuds in your ears. You didn't have, I mean, maybe one of the kids had a Sony Walkman, a five pound brick that they put on their belt and, you know, with their orange headphones and they're listening to the latest Led Zeppelin album, whatever. Right. But for the most part, you hung out, you used your imagination. When the lights on the streetlights came on, Mm. you knew it was time to come home. Mm-hmm. And everything was just slower. Right. We right. had what? 13 channels on our TV right. until cable came out. Right. And then we had 20. Right. And that grew to 100. Right. And then that grew to 1,000. And now I just feel like as a whole, not just in our society here in the United States, but around the world, we are being bombarded with noise. That's the word. That's noise. the exact word I was going to use. I'm watching this incredible uh, series. It's called Last Chance You, and it's about the East Los Angeles Community College basketball team, men's basketball team. And they, these community college basketball is interesting at JUCOs, uh, junior college, because none of the athletes there are there to stay and graduate or go to the pros. They're there temporarily to go to the next level. So there's an incredible amount of pressure on these young athletes to impress the coaches, impress the scouts, win, win championships so that they can get the scholarship at the Division I level mm-hmm. and go on potentially to go to the pros. So they get so focused and locked in. Plus all the other, I mean, these kids are from East LA, so, or a lot of them are, and a lot of them are living on their own and social media and the the pressures of life outside. One of the, uh, the point guard, uh, his mother just passed away of cancer. His dad died a few years ago. So he's, he's on his own. So there's all this pressure and he's a team captain. So the coach did this incredible thing. It was was, because they're, and they also have right now or whenever this documentary was being filmed um they set the school record for wins so they're like 26 wins and one loss so and their pursuit is to become state championships so they were getting to the point where they were beating opponents but just barely because they were running out of energy steam focus and so much noise so the coach took them on a field trip And he took them to a place specifically where there'd be no cell phone coverage and no Wi-Fi. And they got to this uh, basically like a big cabin with an open uh, warehouse facility next to it. And they, they did puzzles. They played 
games. They did team building. They wrote on rocks inspirational quotes to help lift their teammates up. These guys, they were laughing and joking, and they had a blast over the weekend that they were there. Subsequently, they go back, they have a game, and they annihilated their opponent because they had bonded. They had eliminated all that noise, at least for that moment in time, uh, and they were able to, to come back together. So noise, that's a, that's a very good term to describe all the outside influences in life that affect yeah. uh, us today. Yeah. And yeah. thank you for sharing that. And and what was the name of the documentary for our Last Chance You. Last Chance You. So I'll put a link in the incredible. show. Incredible. Yeah. East LA Community College. It's it's a wonderful show. I've been binge watching it. It's great. <laughs> yeah, you know, the the minimalist movement has been growing. Mm. And I think what the minimalist movement is a a way to to live without all this stuff. Mm. Right. To try to pare down. Why do, does a family of four need to have two storage lockers that they're paying for? Why? Right. What possibly could you need to hold on to all this stuff if you haven't touched it in a year? Mm-hmm. And, and so I've been kind of following that for a couple of years, trying mm-hmm. to pare down. Mm-hmm. My family has been trying to work towards this more minimalist mentality of things. Right. But I think what that really is, is as, as we've been talking about here, is the reduction of noise. Mm-hmm. Noise as any pilot can tell you, is extremely fatiguing. Mm-hmm. You know, anyone that takes long flights, if you look at especially business travelers, mm-hmm. they all have the Bose quiet headphones on or some, some version of these noise-canceling headphones on. Why? Because right. noise is fatiguing, not just audio noise, but everything else. And right. if we can all just kind of learn to maintain that standard for yourself and no one else of professionalism and help reduce the noise that is constantly bombarding us from every angle, whether that's the media, whether it's the matrix that's in your pocket, you know, try not to plug into the matrix first thing in the morning and figure out how many likes you got or something or how many emails did you get or, you know, and we just slow things down. Absolutely. And we can still be productive. I mean, look at the productivity of, a, of the average pilot nowadays. We talked mm-hmm. about that on the onset of the show. Mm-hmm. We used to have paper charts. We used to have to print out our releases. We mm-hmm. used to have to go and log on online. That took time. Right. That slowed everything down. But right. now we're being bombarded with real-time facts and figures. Right. And that could create a, just a flooding of information that sometimes is very overwhelming. Right. And then you start tuning out this information. Right. And then that noise is fatiguing, which makes us cranky, irritable. It's it's fatiguing and it's stressful. Yeah. Uh, And another term I use is declutter. Uh, If you can declutter your life. And the example I give is if I have all my stuff all over the house and I, I haven't taken the time to declutter and be neat and fold my uh, training clothes and put them away. If I go for a bike ride, now I have to look for my clothes. I have to look for my heart rate monitor. I, where did I put my earbuds? Where did I put my, my, my light, my bike computer? Yep. 
it takes me twice as long to get ready for my bike ride because I haven't taken the time to declutter and minimalize. Uh, you know, do I need uh, two different heart rate monitors? Do I need, uh, you know, 15 sets of bike kits? Maybe I can do just as good with just five and, you know, give the other ones away to, to charity or whatever. Uh, so there is something to be said for decluttering and, and, and taking a minimalist approach so that you can do things a lot more efficient with a lot less stress. Yeah, it, it really is. I mean, here we are in aviation podcast talking about the journey. <laughs> We're talking about professionalism and mentoring, but it's all related, isn't it? It is. To, yeah. to, to kind of declutter and have that mentality in the cockpit and compartmentalize, as you've mentioned, mm -hmm. and focus on what you're doing right now. And then as soon as the airplane's parked and the final checklist has been done and now you're on the way to a hotel, now's the time to relax, mm -hmm. take that deep breath. Yeah, plug into the matrix on the van ride and <laughs> find out how many messages or, or what's right. on social media or what right. have you. But um, I have my girlfriend to thank uh, for that. Um, I have significantly decreased my uh my elect my plug-in my my plug-in to social media and mm -hmm. electronics uh for a lot of different reasons but um that's another area of stress uh, i think social media is becoming a problem in the in, in america uh it's it's making us less and less uh capable of communicating with each other yeah in and real time and in a personal way the depreciation of soft skills in the united states has been just staggering right and soft skills are the ability to pick up the phone and call someone oh what, my you mean gosh you can text them first i just picked up the phone and call them because i want to have a conversation with them well yeah. they're too busy i emailed busy so and so I, i'm <laughs> waiting for an email back did you, did you try calling them <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah it's it's uh it's amazing yeah and with all this that we're discussing, you know, it reminds me of a, a video that went viral a few years back. Uh, he's an author, an admiral in the U.S. Navy, and he gave a, a speech at a, a commencement speech uh, that was one of the most inspiring things I've ever heard. Uh, if you YouTube it, I'll put a link in the show notes when I find it, but if you YouTube it, uh, where it's, uh, Admiral McGraven leaves uh, an inspiring speech... To me, basic SEAL training was a lifetime of challenges crammed into six months. So here are the 10 lessons I learned from basic SEAL training that hopefully will be of value to you as you move forward in life. Every morning in SEAL training, my instructors, who at the time were all Vietnam veterans, would show up in my barracks room, and the first thing they'd do was inspect my bed. If you did it right, the corners would be square, the covers would be pulled tight, the pillow centered just under the headboard, and the extra blanket folded neatly at the foot of the rack. It was a simple task, mundane at best, but every morning we were required to make our bed to perfection. It seemed a little ridiculous at the time, particularly in light of the fact that we were aspiring to be real warriors, tough, battle-hardened SEALs. But the wisdom of this simple act has been proven to me many times over. If you make your bed every morning, you will have accomplished the first task of the day. It will give you a small sense of pride 
and it will encourage you to do another task, and another, and another. And by the end of the day, that one task completed will have turned into many tasks completed. Making your bed will also reinforce the fact that the little things in life matter. If you can't do the little things right, you'll never be able to do the big things right. And if by chance you have a miserable day, you will come home to a bed that is made. Really, he talks kind of about what we've been talking about, slowing things down. Right. When you get up in the morning, get up with pride and make your bed. Right. Because at least if you do nothing else, you've accomplished something today. Right. Right. That That's really more important in a journey in aviation than people realize. Sometimes, um, and I hear this a lot from CFIs out there, mm-hmm. their students, they do the work and then... They go and they they do the lesson in the airplane. Right. And then they're, okay, let's schedule something for next week. And they go home and they don't pick up a book. They don't, they're busy. Mm -hmm. And my favorite line is something I hear at home all the time. Well, if you have time for Facebook, you have time to have done whatever you were supposed to do. Right. 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 You know, send that email or or fill out that, that, that paperwork. Right. And it's very true. Right. So... The, the biggest complaint that CFIs have that I'm hearing is that the students will then commit like an hour right before the flight to study the next lesson mm. and they're not prepared. And right. so that slows down their training right. because they haven't put the priority, slow it down and figure out what their priority is, which is get the lesson prepared. Don't just wait till the last second. Right. S- commit 10, 15 minutes a day over the course of five, six days. Oh, it was more than that. When I was in flight training, it was a three-day process because you had to read the material for the next day's lesson. And you had to know that because they gave you the lesson on the second day. And then on the third day, you had to go over what you learned the day prior. Plus, you had to now prepare for the next day. So it was like a three-day cycle. Yeah. And if you didn't do that, they would nail you on the brief because they could tell that you weren't prepared, you didn't pre-read, you didn't know your procedures, Um, and you couldn't get away with 10 minutes. (laughs) 10 minutes wasn't going to get you uh, enough to to put all that information in your head. So. you, I don't know. I mean, there, sure, there's professions where you could get away with a few hours of studying, but in the aviation profession, uh, and and I know, like my son being in dental school, that requires commitment over time, yeah, and and a lot of time. So, um, I wanted to go back and share this story uh, because you mentioned the um, making the bed. My parents used to send me to Camp Northover in southbound New Jersey, uh, uh, Boundbrook, Boundbrook in South New Jersey over the summer. And it was a two week camp. And I liked it so much. A couple of years, I was able to double up. So I would actually go for, for a month. Uh, but it was an incredible camp. And you talk about minimalist. All you took was basically, we took a foot locker with clothes for the two weeks or a month, if I was staying a month. And you checked in, you put that footlocker at the base of a cot, and every day was the same. You would 
get up in the morning, you would go to uh, go shower, brush your teeth, you'd come back and you'd make your bed. And it had a, uh, you know, a fitted sheet, a regular sheet, and then it had a wool uh, blanket and kind of like what they have in the military as well. And you had to make that bed and put hospital corners. And that became like a competition. Who could make the best hospital corners on their bed? And then who would have the tightest tuck so you could bounce a coin (laughs) off of your... I mean, we were kids. We were, you know, eight, nine, ten years old doing this. But that sense of pride that you had making that bed the way you made it. And if you made it sloppy, you know, it's not like today. You are going to get made fun of. People are going to dig at you for not making your bed properly because you also had an inspection. They would come by and inspect the the cabin and you could have a a neat bed, but if you're, you know, the the guy over from you didn't have a, a, a made up bed, it, your your cabin would take a hit for for the sloppy bed. Yeah. So everybody was held accountable, and that was a a great lesson, uh, and I think that prepared me for the military life, uh, being able to interact and and have that as a kid. Uh, but we did that, and then we went uh, for breakfast, and then we went to either the pool or did an activity, came back for lunch had a rest break after lunch where we could write letters uh, to home. And then we go out and do some more activities and play, have dinner, sing songs, play games. And and then we got ready, went back to the cabin and got ready for, for bed. We did that every day. And I tell you what, we didn't have computers, phones, none of that stuff. And it was, it was a blast. Yeah. Kind of like the the guys when they went up for the weekend, uh, the basketball team. Yeah, know? yeah, yeah. That, a lot of bonding. That bonding is so crucial. It's There's not enough of it, right? Well, you know, it's time. Uh, we got what thirty minutes for show time for a van, so okay. we better get going. But I want to say thank you so much. Thank you, Tony. It's always a pleasure us. coming. You know, coming. I also want to say thank you to all the frontline workers out there. The, the doctors, nurses, pharmacists, EMTs, medical techs, firefighters, law enforcement, grocery store employees, truck drivers, Amazon workers, and of course, all the airline employees that show up every single day to provide the essential services that they do. I feel that we're finally getting this vaccine rollout, and here in the next probably five to six months, we might to start to see more of the numbers that we're normally used to at this time of year. Uh, I know that Legacy has created uh, quite a few communications to their employees in the past few days, especially with the passing of this new, uh, what, 1.7 trillion or something like that? 1.9 uh, trillion. 1.9 trillion uh, in aid. Um, we're starting to see, uh, I, I know at least out of LA, I was having a conversation with our chief pilot before this trip. We popped in to say hello, and he was telling us we're at about 75% of what we were normally doing this time a couple of years ago. So very excited. They're talking about hiring off the street pretty soon because we're, we've recalled everyone. Um, so hopefully this trend will continue. Um, if you're enjoying Squawk Ident, please make sure to follow the show. And if you would like, send us a good review. 
on Apple Podcasts. It really does help us out. So whether you're listening to Apple Podcast players or other podcast players, or you're checking us out on the YouTube channel, we absolutely appreciate your support with a like, a subscribe, and a listen. You can also send us audio feedback and comments via our website at www.aviatortony.com. That's Alpha, Victor, the number eight, Romeo, Tango, Oscar, November, Yankee.com. There you can find audio archives, photos from the flight line, the Squawk Ident Pilot Shop, and a guest book photos tab. Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram users can find us under the Squawk Ident Podcast. One final thank you to you. Captain Thank L1. You, Tony, Thanks, for Kevin. Me. And uh, for all your wisdom uh, as well. It's been a pleasure. Always well received. Thank you to you, the listener, for taking the time to listen to these grateful aviators. Keep the dirty side down out there. Be safe and take care of each other. Have a good one, everyone. Bye, y'all. Bye.